Acts chapter 10. Now in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He was a devout man, revering God with all his household. He gave tzedakah generously to the people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? The angel said to him, Your prayers and tzedakah have gone up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, also called Peter. He is being entertained as a guest by Simon the Tanner, whose house is beside the sea. When the angel speaking to him had left, he called two of his servants and a soldier from among those attached to his command. After he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as the soldiers were traveling and approaching the city, Peter went up to the rooftop to pray at about the sixth hour. Now he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet coming down, lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all sorts of four-footed animals and reptiles and birds of the air. A voice called and came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Certainly not, Lord, for never have I eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean you must not consider unholy. This happened three times, and the sheet was immediately taken up to heaven. The title of this message is, God is doing a new thing. <laughs> I'm not exactly a rapper, but I thought that uh, this would uh, capture your attention, which it evidently did. Um, the, the point is not about um, becoming something we're not but learning to recognize the reality that God is working. And we are often so oblivious and preoccupied with our life, with other people's lives, and we really are not able to see the fact that God is at work. And uh, I am like most people or all people, um, not particularly um, n uh, observant until I see something that comes uh, a couple of inches from my nose. And um, by the way, before I forget, wanted to be sure and recognize and welcome and love upon one of our ministry folks from Israel, Rose Quackenbush. Stand up, dear. Come on. Rose loves to be embarrassed. Um, so part of the picture for us is having our eyes open to see the fact that God is alive and well and doing things beyond us. And I've been getting some extra lessons in that. It's pretty cool. Um, but like anything that God does, we get stretched. We don't like to be stretched. You know what I'm saying? Um, 
couple of weeks ago, actually one Shabbat ago, um, as I was getting ready to come, uh, Joy calls out to me. She is leaving already, and our garage door is in need of serious ministry. <laughs> and uh, so she took off, and I came and pushed a button, and the garage door looked like it was going to explode on me. You know, the, uh, the cables and the rollers and so on. And, and uh, so we contacted uh, a company that uh, came on Saturday at 5 o'clock um, because we, we had to have it available um, on Sunday, by Sunday. And uh, Joyce says, oh, the guy's here. So I come out. And he's wearing a big Star of David. And uh, he opens his mouth. And I know that he is a paisan. And so we start to chatter in Hebrew. And uh, find out his name is Etzion. And he does the business. Does a good job. And then after he's done, we get to talking about life. And come to find out this fellow was raised Orthodox in Jerusalem. Um, but he fought in the war in Gaza um, in 2014. And his brother died in, an, in a motorcycle accident. And both of those events pushed him over the edge and he became totally secular. And interestingly enough, he has some kind of a notion of the possibility that someday God might zap him. And if that were the case, then the natural thing for him to, to do is to become orthodox again and in the form of Chabad. Um, Chabad, if you're not aware, is an outreach, not like our kind of outreach, but outreach to unaffiliated Jewish people, um, not with the good news of Yeshua, but with the good news of Torah. And um, I simply looked at Etzion, and I said to him, you know, I anticipate that at some point God would grab a hold of you and that the result might not be you ending up in Chabad. And I thought to myself, you know, this was such a divine appointment. It started out with, God, how would you let this happen on Shabbat? You know, as I'm starting to get ready. And, and part of the what God had to uh, do some deprogramming with me is that uh, in all the years of ministry at Yeshua Tzion, either Friday or Shabbat morning, some crisis took place. And uh, particularly when we had issues with our daughter, more often than not, it took place on Friday or on Shabbat. And uh, so part of my inclination was to slip into Eeyore-ism. You, you know what I mean? 
oh, we have warfare, and just as we're preparing for Shabbat, and uh, the evil one is working and pushing buttons and so on and so forth. And uh, I was blessed, not initially, didn't think I was blessed, but I was blessed that our associate rabbi David challenged me and said, well, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I realized, you know, the, the issue isn't that so much as much as it, it is the recognition that what defines our life is not the fact that there's craziness and wackiness and, and there is evil out there lurking and in, engaging and doing all kinds of things. What defines our life is that the Lord is El Elyon, God Most High. Yes? You're not sure? Which simply means that in any and all situations, somehow, God has mastery. And so, when we go through difficult circumstances, we don't park on a difficult circumstances, but we say, Lord, what is it that you're doing and that you want to do, the good things that you're doing, and how do you want to take this situation that seems disastrous and turn it for the good because that's what the word of God says and so that for me has become more the defining mindset because reality is you live long enough things happen things you know what I'm saying um, things happen I'm not going to use the more profane version of that. Um, so we can either we can either look at that and be consumed with the stuff, or else we can back up and say, "Okay, Lord, you are indeed in control somehow." I have no clue how, but you're in control and you're doing things and and I'm not going to kvetch and do the eorism, but I, would you please open my eyes since I'm somewhat on the clueless side and show me what it is that you are engaged in doing so that I can participate in it. Instead of, you know, working with Eeyore, working with you and doing the work that you have in this particular situation as difficult and challenging as it is. And so, at least for me, this has become part of reality to say God is always at work. God is always at work. We'll talk about that some more towards the end of the message, but particularly... We forget the fact that God does new things and depending on his particular calendar, they're really, really new and spectacular or they're just new as far as his work with us is concerned. 
So in the book of Acts, um, we see all kinds of wild things happening. God rolls up the sleeves and gets to work in a way that is much more visible. You know, you have the timid disciples who are beaten down. All of a sudden, they're transformed. They're white hot um, for God. They're able to come before the Supreme Court of the land, the Sanhedrin, and get in their faces and say, you guys are out of line. And um, we see all kinds of miracles. Um, we see the Samaritans, who were sort of the half-breeds, part Jewish, part goulash, uh, being swept into the kingdom. We see the Ethiopians coming to the kingdom. And we see the absolute enemy of the, the believing community being knocked off his donkey. And part of the picture is that in the midst of all of that, the intense persecution, the believers are scattered, and as they're going, they're not huddling into, into a fetal position to protect themselves. But as they're being scattered to all kinds of places, God gives them, God, the, the Spirit of God gives them the power to open their mouth and share the good news with people. But yet, this is still impacting primarily uh, the nation of Israel. Very, very few. Uh, non-Jews, proselytes on Shavuot, the Samaritans, and so on. And yet, God had a massive work that he had to do with the Gentile nations because that's what the Scripture tells us. That God was preparing to reach the Gentile nations, the millions and millions of people who were rank pagan, who had absolutely no clue about the God of Israel or about God's word. And so God had to work very carefully to pick the right people to use as trailblazers through which to do this work. And he begins with a guy that we would not necessarily assume. He was a Roman. He was an Italian. The centurions were middle-grade officers. They were the backbone of the uh, Roman army. Um, in the scripture, in the New Testament, the centurions, whenever you see a centurion, you know that they're high-quality people. More often than not, there are people who, who are uh, God-fearing and who have good relationship with the Jewish community. So Cornelius then would be the right person to be a bridge builder. And he's described as a God-fearer, which was a technical term in the first century, which meant 
a Gentile who was drawn to connect with the Jewish community who had put off uh, pagan worship, but who had not yet taken the step to, to convert and undergo and, and become a proselyte. We're also told that he gave generously. Um, that, of course, was one of the main pillars in Judaism, still is, one of the three uh, pillars. And he is a man who prayed regularly. Now, it's interesting, you may have picked up on the fact that um, he is praying at 3 o'clock. And 3 o'clock was not accidental because 3 o'clock was one of the prescribed times of prayer for a Jewish person. Still is. And it's intriguing that God speaks to him while he's praying. Well, okay, that's a no-brainer. It simply reminds us of the fact that we are more inclined to hear from God when we are praying. You look at me as if to say, okay, you're discovering me America here. <laughs> and um, the angel said to him, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering. And this, by the way, is a phrase that came out of the Torah of Leviticus specifically um, that had to do with the grain offering, the incense offering, the bread of the presence, which the King James calls the shoe bread. Um, all of those things and a number of other ones were described as memorial offerings. In other words, somehow that you bring it to God, um, it is a reminder to him of who you are, your commitment, and so on. Reminder of his commitment as well. Not that he needed education, but that's what Scripture says. So what does that tell us when it uses that phrase, memorial offering? It tells us that Cornelius was connected to synagogue worship, and he was connected to the worship at the temple. Remember that there was the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And so he was the right person, the right Gentile, to begin this massive work that God was going to do to start the process of reaching Gentile nations. Then, of course, God had to pick the right Jew to connect with this right Gentile. And we're told about Peter that he was staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house by, was by the sea. Now, perhaps you may or may not have picked up on the fact that a tanner was not ritually clean because he dealt with skins of dead animals. So the fact that Peter was staying with him meant that Peter was not exactly extremely scrupulous about who he stayed with. In other words, Peter, as Michael pointed out earlier today, he was flexible. And of course, we know that Peter was one of the leaders uh, in the congregation in 
Jerusalem, the mothership, and he was able to come with authority. And he was someone, obviously, receptive to changes. And this was going to be a biggie. God was going to push the envelope. Envelope, in fact, not only push the envelope, blow the envelope. Because this is something that would take a lot of doing. Now, please remember, folks, that the Torah did not prohibit an Israelite from having social contact with, with the Gentiles. You have all kinds of examples of Gentiles in the land of Israel, the aliens who had become part of the spiritual community of Israel. And we have other examples. Um, so scripture never prohibited Israelites or Jews from having connection with Gentiles. However, by the first century, you have a fairly developed system that the, that the Pharisees or the rabbis instituted that said you cannot come into the house of a non-Jew and certainly eat with them. Why? Because they are ritually defiled. You know, they will eat something that they enjoy like pork chops and, uh, you know, the moment they eat that, that's it's not kosher. You're not kosher. So we find that that was a problem, even we find that in the book of Galatians. And so Peter, even though he was flexible, had to get some kind of special message from God that says, Peter, I'm doing a new thing here. And so he has this special vision. Now, I don't know, I find it intriguing that he's hungry and God talks to him about food. <laughs> he, he, you know, it makes perfectly good sense. However, what folks who are not part of the Messianic community look at that and they say, wow, that, that was a spectacular vision. Wow, God talked to him about eating all these cool things. Well, from a Jewish perspective, that was not a vision or a dream. That was a nightmare. <laughs> you know, sometimes people think that, that God said to him, Here, here's a cockroach, take and saute the cockroach, and, and, and here's a rattlesnake, get up and kill it and, and, and uh, put it over coals and grill it. For Peter, this was a nightmare. God was asking him to do something that God prohibited the people of Israel from doing. It's like irrational, illogical, please explain. <laughs> and God did. Now, I find it intriguing that God had to repeat the message three times. Just like Yeshua had to repeat the message three times in the book of John, where he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter had to be convinced because this is big stuff. It was first started with, get up, Peter, and kill and eat. Lord, forget it. Ain't going to happen. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Um, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Get up, 
Peter and kill and eat. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now the word impure uh, it basically means unholy, meaning something that was not set apart for you to eat. It's not that there was anything really uh, polluted in it. The other word has to do with eating things that are not appropriate, um, are unclean, like eating something that came from a dead animal. So the Spirit of God tells him to get up, get up and, and go with the, with the three men who came. Now, I chuckle sometimes by, by the way this is presented by fellow believers because they say, they look at the vision and they say, God told Peter that from this point on he could enjoy ham and cheese sandwich and Passover. Uh, that, that Yeshua said all foods are clean, so therefore you guys who persist on keeping some form of kosher, you guys are not doing what Yeshua said, and you are ignoring what God said to Peter. Except that in this chapter and in chapter 11, when there is a description of, of the vision, Nowhere does it talk about food. Nowhere is Peter saying, you know, God gave me a vision and he told me that I can eat anything I wanted to eat, so here I am. The same thing in chapter 11 when he tells the story to the, the folks in the mothership in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, God said that for the sake of impacting non-Jews, the Gentiles, that I should be willing to lay aside my scruples, even something that is very strongly customary, traditional, so that I can come in and talk to them and share my heart and tell them about who Yeshua is. So Peter does that. Peter comes to Caesarea, which was somewhat like a um, Roman colony. And then he begins to share with the people who are there at Cornelius' house. In verse 34, if you want to follow along for a few minutes. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear and do what is right. You say, wow, Peter, where did you get that? What about the notion of Israel being a chosen people? Yes, Israel was chosen, is chosen, However, Israel was chosen because God so loved the Gentile nations that he wanted to select the people who would be his vessels, his instruments to be a light to the nations. So he, Peter proceeds to tell them about Yeshua and apparently uh, we're surprised by the fact that what took place in Yeshua's life and ministry spread all over 
not only to the Gentile enclaves, but it spread way beyond uh, the land of Israel. As we saw earlier, that um, the story about what God was doing in Israel and through Yeshua's life in ministry spread to people. Verse 44 of chapter 10, Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, there were seven altogether, by the way, which I find intriguing, um, those who came with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking tongues and praising God. So the, these uh, Jewish believers not know that God had a plan for, it, for the Gentile nations? They did. But they simply had absolutely no clue how it was going to happen. So, were they ethnocentric, in other words, anti-Gentile and preoccupied with Israel? No, they just had no clue because for them, in order for a Gentile to become part of the kingdom, they had to become part of Israel. They had to undergo conversion. And part of what God is doing here is saying to them, no, I'm going to save Gentiles as Gentiles. And again, Peter and the rest of the Jewish disciples who came with him had no clue when they came, but now they have definitive evidence of the fact that God was doing something new. That God was reaching the Gentiles in fulfillment of the predicted prophecy. And, and you know, I, I want to park on this for, for just a moment or so. Um, sometimes we grow in our relationship with God and we have some kind of discernment that He is at work in our life. He wants to do something. And we accept it cognitively somewhere in the upper uh, cerebrum. But in reality, we really don't accept it because we have no clue how it's going to happen. And so part of the challenge for us is to recognize the fact that God can do things that are spectacularly new and different using paradigms that we have never seen before. And so, this is something I feel like God is doing in our congregational mishpacha. That he's drawing us out of our own comfort level and saying, you know, I have work for you to do beyond these walls. And yes, there's work that needs to be done in these walls, in our fellowship, in our interaction, in our um, encouraging one another. However, I have work that needs to be done beyond these walls 
And I want you to simply say, I'm here. I'm available. Without feeling like, okay, God, yeah, I, I have it all together. I know exactly what needs to happen. I have a plan. I have a strategy. But, but rather simply say, God, okay, I, I uh, somewhat timidly, we come to God and say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing. I, I'm a pot of clay, and I have all kinds of weaknesses and insecurities and blah, 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 blah. And, however, I know who you are. I know who you are. You are El Elyon, God Most High. That you have good plans, not just for me, but through me. You want to impact people. And in this day and age where it seems like things are descending morally and ethically, We as believers cannot afford to get into a holy huddle and dismiss what's out there because we find it repulsive, forgetting the fact that there are people that God wants to reach and that he expects us simply to be available, not to fix them, but to be available. And I believe, as, as I'm sensing, discerning, that the pace is going to pick up. That God's work is accelerating and will accelerate. And in some ways that's unsettling, perhaps even scary, because we like things to be relatively uh, stable, or what we consider stable. Or we can say, God, the fields are ready for harvest. And you use all kinds of pots of clay to get the job done. And I'm here. I'm here. You have the strategy. You have the power of the spirit. And I just want to be available. Somehow it's a collaborative process. I mentioned Philippians chapter 2. I want to come back to it. We sometimes focus on work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with awe and reverence, and we stop, which puts the 800-pound gorilla on our shoulders, forgetting the next phrase, for, in other words, the reason why we can do that is that God is at work effectively to act and, and, and to draw out your will, your, your decision-making process according to his good purpose. Somehow, God is able to work effectively in us and change our willingness so that we, we, you come before God and say, Lord, I'm here. Signs still delivered. I'm yours. Radical commitment to God. You come and you say, God, no holds barred. 
Every single room in my house, every single closet in my house is yours. Even the ones that have cockroaches and spiders and skeletons and so on. Because I am unconditionally yours. Then we step back and see what God wants to do. Why? Because it's, it's all Him. It's all about Him. I'm going to close with this verse. This is what the Lord says. He who had made a way through the sea. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Literally, it's growing. Do you not perceive it? And if you don't, there's no shame in saying, God, I'm clueless. I'm absolutely clueless. Would you please open my eyes, give me a new pair of glasses, make it happen so that I am able to see what it is that you're doing so I can engage in it. You don't come to the Lord and say, Lord, who am I? You should pick someone else who is cuter and more intelligent and more dynamic, etc. You don't say to God, God, you want me to do what? And as Jessica mentioned earlier, you don't allow yourself to be driven by fear because God is greater than that. And you simply say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. And if you don't get it, folks, ask God to give you a greater sense of urgency because we live in times that require you and I to be available to God's work more fully, more intensely for his kingdom to expand. God has been doing new work. He wants us to be part of the process. Let's pray. Lord God, we are amazed that you would choose us to be your sons and daughters. We're amazed, Lord God. that you would call us into your service with all our faults and all our yuck and all our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you know us, you love us. And I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that you would give us a strong sense of urgency to recognize, Lord God, that the time is short, to recognize, Lord God, that you have assignments for each one of us and to grasp, Lord God, what that, has, what that or those assignments are. We pray, Lord God, that you would recruit us and empower us by your Ruach, by your Spirit, for the working of the kingdom purposes you have for us. May you receive much honor and glory as we hear and as we respond by faith. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.